0: What's your favorite food? I I was reading this story about a young boy whose favorite food in all the world were McDonald's French fries. And and so anytime he was getting rewarded for good grades or getting rewarded for accomplishing something at home, his dad would take him out for French fries. And on one particular occasion, his his dad had purchased him a large container of French fries. They sat down and, and the young boy started to consume the fries and Dad was overcome by the smell and he reached out to grab a fry at which time the son slapped his hand and said, No, Dad, those are my fries. The father stopped for a second and calmed himself because instantly he was thinking, Do you know who bought those fries for you? But but he didn't say that. He then began to think, You know, I'm bigger than you. I could take those fries if I wanted to. You couldn't stop me. But then he began to think, I could buy you a whole truckload of fries. Why are you so convinced that I won't buy more for you? And then he began to realize, I could just go buy my own. But what I ultimately really desire is for my son to understand who gave it to him and be willing to share it with others. Amen. I- I'm afraid far too often I, we, earn off a lot like that little boy that God blesses us with incredible things and when he desires to take some of them, we say, no God, this is mine. If you have your Bibles, would you go with me back to the book of Romans? We uh, uh, were in the book of Romans all of 2021 and we made it clear to chapter 11 and it seemed like a nice ending spot. We went on to Christmas and it was my intention to take the month of January, which then became most of of the month of February, and look at the subject of prayer and last week we were in the Lord's Prayer and... And I wasn't entirely certain whether we should wait another week so we could have two months on prayer or jump back into Romans. Somebody suggested we should spend the entire week on, Lord, lead us not into evil and protect us from the evil one as it seems to be so prominent in our world. But I decided it was time to get back to Romans. Romans. Romans is an incredible book, and chapter 12 really begins a new section. If you're familiar with Paul's writings, I'm sure you recognize many of his books kind of break down along these two lines, that the, the first half is all about doctrine, and the second half about duty, or belief and behavior, or about theological and practical, and Romans really is no different. And Romans chapter 12 begins this incredibly intensely practical section on how should those who have accepted Christ the Savior, live. And we're going to be here for a little while, hopefully not all of 2022, but I would like to this morning just begin by reading all of chapter 12 in its entirety. Paul writes these words, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, By the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, are, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be severe. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. but overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 12 really is Paul's blueprint for what a church body should look like, and we're gonna spend a few weeks on it, but this morning, it was originally my intent to get through the first two verses. I don't think we're gonna succeed. <laughs> we're gonna make it through Romans chapter 12, 1. but Romans chapter twelve one and 2 are, are some of the most familiar verses, and I'm guessing many of you have them committed to memory, but they are critical verses, Paul begins by saying, I urge you. It's not exactly what I would have expected. I would have expected him to say, I command you. Paul sits in the position as an apostle, and as an apostle, he is in the position of Jesus and has the full authority of Jesus and has every right to tell us how to live. And he could say, listen, this is how you must live. But that's not what he says. He says, I urge you. It's actually an interesting word, and maybe the, the classic place is in the book of Philemon, it, just a little bit of background of Philemon. Paul travels to the city of Colossae, and while in the city of Colossae, he meets this wealthy man named Philemon, and Philemon comes to Christ. And when Philemon comes to Christ, he works with a gentleman by the name of Epaphras who starts the church of Colossae that gets the book of Colossians written to them. In Philemon's house, as was true in almost every Roman house, there was a a large number of slaves and one of the slaves, a slave by the name of Onesimus, does something to offend Philemon. We're not 100% sure, but most would suggest it was probably stole money from Philemon and then escaped. Paul is in Rome in jail waiting to find out if he gets to keep his head when Onesimus crosses his path. We don't know for certain how, if he sought Paul out or if he also was arrested. But while in jail with Paul, Onesimus comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. And when he comes to the saving knowledge of Christ, his life is transformed and Paul falls in love with Onesimus and he writes the book of Philemon for the sole purpose of saying to Philemon, I don't want you to punish Onesimus. In fact, I not only want you to forgive his debts, I want you to accept him as a brother, as an equal. And in the midst of that, he's going to make this statement. He's going to say, accordingly though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer, and here's our word, to appeal to you, to urge you, to beg you, to treat him differently. Paul, back in the book of Romans, is going to say, I could command you, but I'm not going to. I plead with you. I urge you. Why do I urge you rather than com- command you? Well, I think it's caught up in the word therefore. If you've been here many times, you know that therefore is one of my favorite words in the New Testament because it gives you a chance to figure out what it's there for. It is that hinge word that takes us back to the preceding passage and some might argue that it takes us back to chapter 11. We haven't been there for three months, so my guess is you may have forgotten how chapter 11 ends. Chapter 11 ends with one of the most beautiful doxologies Paul will ever write. He concludes his doctrinal section with these words, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should replay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That would be a good reason to appeal. But that isn't really what Paul says. He says, therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy. I'm a little intrigued because Romans 12, 1 and 2 are some of the most familiar verses in scripture, but they're also filled with uh, some real difficulty in trying to translate from Greek into English because mercy is withholding what we deserve. I know this would never happen to any of you, but this afternoon you run to Iowa City, you find yourself on the interstate going 90 miles an hour when the police officer pulls you over. He checks your license and registration. He goes back to his car, and then he comes up to you and says, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. I'm just going to warn you. That's mercy. You deserve a ticket, but he treats you with mercy. God has treated us with mercy, but the word is actually plural. It's God's mercies. See, I'm convinced what Paul wants us to do is to reflect upon everything that we have learned in the previous 11 chapters. And so in danger of taking the rest of the morning, let me give you a quick tour through the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. The book of Romans begins in in chapter one with Paul saying the wrath of God is being revealed, not is going to be revealed. It is currently being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what was and what has been made, so that you and I are without excuse. Paul begins in chapter 1 to lay out all of us deserve God's wrath. In chapter 5, he's going to explain exactly how few sins are necessary to receive that wrath. He's going to say, for by trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, consequently just as the result of a single trespass, all humanity was condemned. I'm confident there's not a single one of us in this room that would honestly say we have never committed a sin in our actions, in our words, or in our thoughts. And it takes but one to be deserving of God's judgment. In fact, he's going to go out of his way in chapter 3 to make certain that all of us understand that as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. And here I really believe is the, the center of sin is that we refuse to seek God. We desire to seek ourselves. And thus we're all deserving of judgment. But in chapter 3, he turns the corner and he says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, you can never possibly earn God's favor. You will never live good enough to enter heaven. And yet he provides a righteousness to anyone who will believe There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified. That is made, declared judiciously right by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And God presented him as a, the word is literally a propitiation, a huge word that we don't use very often in English anymore, but it speaks of someone who stands in my place to take the punishment that I deserve. Jesus died for my sin and for yours. And thus he makes available through his blood justification so that this morning we can be declared just as if we had never sinned. And Paul in chapter 4 is going to want us to make certain we understand that it's not by working. He, He goes back to the life of Abraham and he shows how it wasn't Abraham's works. It wasn't Abraham's religious rituals. It wasn't anything about Abraham. It was if we work, the wages are not credited to us as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts in God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And Paul in the first five chapters is going to help us understand that this justification comes through the death of Christ. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will through those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Paul is going to spend the first five chapters wanting us to understand that justification is possible through faith in Christ. And if that were the only mercy, that would be pretty amazing. But then chapter 5 he begins, and I don't have time to stop on any of these, but he's going to in verse 1 say that we, because we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Because we have peace with God, we now have access to God. Because we have access to God, God has sent his spirit to live within us. We have been reconciled. We've been brought back to the position in which we are his family. And then in chapter 6 and 7 he turns to the question of if I've been justified and have peace with God and access in the indelible presence of the holy spirit and reconciliation i should live differently chapter 7 is i'm never going to be perfect and then in chapter 8 he goes to there's therefore it would be wonderful if he said there is never condemnation it's not what he says there is now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus He ends with this incredible, I I would love to go back to the end of Romans 8 and that incredible extended passage that talks about the love of God. And then we come to chapter 9 through 11. He talks about this security that we have. As he goes to Israel, can I somehow lose my salvation? Can I somehow be found guilty after I've been justified? And the whole point of chapters 9, 10, and 11 is to say, no, God's love is permanent. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified and it is with the mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are the mercies God is talking about. In light of all that God has already done for us, Paul is going to call us to live a certain way. But there's another word that... maybe you don't do this. I I, I do this from time to time. I I can't tell you how many times I've read Romans 12 and 11 and missed what I would suggest is a really important word. The word is brothers. I don't believe Paul uses throwaway words. In in fact, I, I do believe, see one of the problems with approaching the book of Romans as I have done, we've taken now we did the first two months of 2020. We did all of 2021. We're now into 2022, and it's probably going to take us the rest of 2022 22 if we're ever going to get through it. Sometimes we forget that this was a letter that Paul wrote that intended to be read at a single sitting. If you were in the church at Rome, you would have listened to this entire letter. And I think Paul's whole point is you've been listening. I assume you're paying attention. And I hope that you have crossed the line of faith. And if you have, you are now part of the family. Because we've broken it down, I I don't want to pass that point too quickly. I I hope this morning, if there's anyone who has never come to the place that you've placed your faith in Christ, I, I would love to sit down and talk with you about what that means. But if you have, you're part of the family. And don't run past that too fast. If you remember back when we were introducing it, we actually did it in 2019 when we surveyed the book of Romans. We did it in 2020 when we started the book of Romans. We did it again in 2021. So I figured I don't want to let 2022 out. So the the church at Rome was most likely begun on the day of Pentecost. If you remember Acts chapter two, there were Jews from all over the Roman empire and they came and they heard Peter preach for the very first time. And as they listened to him speak, Thousands placed their faith in Christ, and many of them went back to their homeland. In fact, I think the church at Rome was originally started by those believers from the day of Pentecost, which means the church in Rome was originally a Jewish church, and the leadership and those in charge were Jews. But in 49 AD, the emperor Claudius got ticked at the Jews, so much so that he kicked all of the Jews out of the city of Rome. And this church that was predominantly led, directed, guided by Jews was suddenly now cast into the leadership of the Gentiles. After five years, Claudius allows the Jews to return, and when he does, suddenly there's problems because the Jews and Gentiles think differently. We would probably use a term like racism. I I know for that Americans, we view racism as this black and white issue. But I would suggest from the moment that Cain got upset at God for not accepting his sacrifice, we as humanity have always wanted to put others down and ourselves up. And we like our group better than other groups. Racism has always been real. In fact, there has been few racism more intense than the racism of of Jew and Gentile. And a big part of the reason why the Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans is because there was real tension in the church at Rome between the Jew and the Gentile members. And Paul wants them to understand in chapters 2 and 3, he goes out of his way and he says, Jews, you are no better than the Gentiles. Don't let the, the whole idea that you are Abraham's descendants to deceive you. That means Nothing. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he comes to the Gentiles and he says, don't forget, the Jews are God's people. And it's true that he has cut them off and removed them from the moment, but he has a future for them. And you should love them as well. And then he comes to chapter 12 and he now says, brothers, I am so excited that we are all part of the family of God. My father passed away roughly a month ago and I have been spending a fair amount of time contemplating my childhood. Uh, I I have two brothers who are 15 and 16 years younger than me, and sadly, uh, I was out of the house before they were really able to talk, and so I, I have never developed a very good relationship with them. But my older brother and my younger sister, we have always been really close. I have thoroughly enjoyed the privilege of growing up in the home that I got to grow up in. But please don't hear that to say we always agreed on everything, because we didn't. Several years ago, my sister gave me a coffee mug, and I was going to take a picture, and I forgot to do that, so I apologize. Maybe I'll show it to you someday. It says on it, I'm really glad you're my brother. I just wish so many people didn't know it. (laughs) We love each other. We occasionally argue. Sometimes they walk away and say, oh, that Danny just doesn't get it. But at the end of the day, they're my family. And they will always be my family. And there's nothing they could ever do that would have me cast them aside. I believe that's exactly what Paul is getting at. Is the church is intended to be a family And if you go back to the first century Roman world, the first century Jewish world, to become a follower of Jesus almost certainly meant you were cast from your physical family and were in desperate need of a new family. And Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, my brothers and sisters, my family, by the mercies of God, Paul wants us to come together in a unique and unbelievable way that yes, we may agree and we may not. Yes, you may see it my way and maybe you won't. But we are family. We're brothers and sisters because of what Jesus did. And thus Paul jumps to, because of the mercies of God, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This goes straight over our heads. I'm guessing none of us in this room have ever seen a sacrifice. But as you open the beginning of the Bible, in fact, in the very early parts of Genesis, one of the first things God commands is for there to be an animal sacrifice. The whole mosaic system was set up around the offering of animals, going to the temple, bringing a, a sheep, a goat, an ox, and watching as the priest slit its throat and collected its blood. But it wasn't just Jews. The Roman world, every single community had dozens of different temples and as a part of those temples were constant sacrifices. In fact, if you lived in the Roman world, you were required once a year to go to the local temple, bring an animal and have that sacrifice and declare Caesar is Lord and if you didn't, it was a capital offense. Sacrifices were everywhere and you understood. Sacrifices don't go home. If I bring my sheep to the temple, he's not going home with me. And and frankly, I am incredibly grateful that we don't do animal sacrifices. But I fear sometimes, I don't understand the seriousness of what Paul is getting at. He is saying that you and I are to bring ourselves and lay ourselves on the altar of Christ and say, my body is, is yours. What is it that you truly live for? Some of us live for family. Some of us live for work. Some of us live for money. Some of us live for fun. Some of us live for all kinds of different reasons that in and of themselves are not wrong. But as a follower of Jesus, I have to be willing to lay myself on his altar and say it's not what I want. It's what you want. It's not about what makes me happy, but about what you desire from me. I know it's a silly story, but I remember the story of the chicken and the pig that were walking past a breakfast. And the chicken said to the pig, Maybe we should go contribute some eggs and ham. And the pig said, For you, that's a contribution. For me, it's all my life. God doesn't ask for our eggs. He asks for everything. And, 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 I, and I get that that may not be a common thought, and I fear that we don't really understand the seriousness of what Christ is asking from us. He wants us to bring our bodies. We don't really have time this morning to go back to chapter three, but it's fascinating to me as Paul begins to lay out sin He lays out sin, how it impacts our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths, our feet, our eyes. We sin physically, and thus he asks for our bodies. He asks them. Now, this is where it gets really confusing because every sacrifice they would have ever seen was a dying sacrifice. It's not what Paul asks for. He asks for a living sacrifice. When I was in high school, I I struggled with the whole idea of could I give my life for Christ. If this morning somebody came in and pointed a gun at me, at you, and said, deny Christ or die, would I be willing to say, no, I'll die? A youth pastor we had took me aside and said, Dan, God doesn't ask us to die for him. He asks us to live for him. And if we live for him, he'll give us the grace to face whatever life may bring. I don't know, maybe the day will come when that gun will be pointed in my face or yours. But this morning, he's not asking you to die. He's asking you to live for him. To give him your life. It's a holy and pleasing sacrifice. And once again, I don't think spiritual act of worship is the best translation. The word for spiritual is actually the Greek word we get the English word logic from. And the word that's translated worship is actually the word we get liturgy from. If I may go back to my roots in 1611 and go back to the King James, I I like the way it translates it. I think it captures it better. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And that is your reasonable service. In the days coming out of World War II, as Americans returned from war, there was an explosion of missions outreach. Young men traveled the globe. Young men and women traveled everywhere to take the good news of Jesus. Raymond Davis was a a soldier who returned, went to Bible college, and went to the nation of Ethiopia. And he began to to share the good news of gospel. He found himself in a, a small village. And as he preached, the very first convert he had was a slave. Who accepted Jesus as his savior. The owner of the slave mocked him and wanted nothing to do with him and made the slave's life incredibly difficult, but there was nothing that the slave could do. He could become free if he could acquire $12, but as a slave who never got paid, it might as well have been a million. But Raymond began to think, I could pay that $12. So he went to the owner of this slave and he paid to purchase the freedom of the slave. It was only days later that civil war broke out in Ethiopia and Raymond and the rest of the missionaries left Ethiopia and didn't return for 25 years. 25 years later Raymond was headed back to that same village and the slave who had been freed by the gospel and freed by the kindness of the missionary, so longed to see his friend. He came numerous days to the mission compound. Is the missionary here yet? And the day finally came when he saw his friend driving in and he ran to the car while it was still moving, yelling to everyone, behold, behold, my Redeemer has returned. Finally the car stopped and he fell at the man's feet and began to kiss his feet. Raymond picked him up and said, no, no, we are brothers. If somebody gave everything for your freedom, how would you respond? I believe Paul suggests someone has. And the reasonable response is for us to give our lives to follow Christ. I hope that's your decision as well. Father, I I do thank you. For the chance to gather this morning. I, I thank you for the book of Romans. And God, I know that there's so much more that could be said, but I pray that you would take something this morning and speak to each one who's here and allow us to leave changed because we've been confronted by your word. For it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you much. Have a great week.